If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 6th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. Carrie Harrison with you, and welcome. On this outing, our show is about remembrance, about two ladies gone but not forgotten. Feminist icon and artist Ivy Botini and Mark Bingham's brave single mom, Alice Hoagland, both stand out as favorite interviews on our near 50 years on the air. Let's start with Ivy Botini. To legendary activist and artist Ivy Botini, feminism and lesbian rights go hand in hand an opinion not shared by many feminists in the 1960s, including one Betty Friedan. Oh, yeah. I mean, she wanted me dead. I mean, <laughs> if were, looks were you could... the lesbian that, that she was targeting? Was it you, or were there a few others? Well, there probably were a few <laughs> others, but I was the first thorn in this side in the New York chapter. In 1969, I did a, a panel. When the chapter formed and as we moved, I'd meet these lesbians, but they were all in the closet deep in the closet, scared out of their minds, and I thought, well, that's not right. So I put a panel together, and there were 15 of us. I was a moderator. And uh, the title of the panel was, Is Lesbianism a Feminist Issue? And the reaction, I mean, there, there were two lesbians on the panel, Barbara Love and Sidney Abbott, who wrote uh, Sappho's a Right-On mm-hmm. Woman. They were the only two lesbians on that panel. All the other women were straight. I was, I was still married. Did they know that you were a lesbian? Did you know you were a lesbian? Well, I knew I was a lesbian. I didn't know how to get there. Right. So you were still in that coming out to yourself. Yeah. Figuring out the logistics of it. Yeah. Phase. Yeah. And not trying to hurt my family. It didn't work. We used to have a meeting once a month. And I changed it to once a week. You can't have a movement once a month. You know, it's just... <laughs> insane. That would be a crawl. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so one night was the program meeting, and I always advertised the program in the New York Times under things to do or whatever the heading was at the time. And normally we would get, you know, at the regular meeting, the members, maybe we'd get 40 members would come, and then we'd get maybe another 10 from outside. Mm-hmm. This one, where I advertised this lesbianism of feminist issue, that place was packed. There were over 300 people that showed up in the basement of that church. 
And I went, hmm, I think I... Mean, I, I, I think I recall reading about this, that this was really a pivotal moment. What happened after that was just amazing to me. Uh, the, the, the feedback that came back was that we were all lesbians on the panel because why would you want to talk about it? You know, why? And then Betty Friedan was furious. She was just in, my ass was in a sling from that point on. <laughs> and she was determined to get rid of me. And the elections were coming up. Normally, we had 40 or 50 people at the elections. But at this election, there were, there were like a couple of hundred people showed up. And I had been warned by Barbara Love and Sidney Abbott. Barbara called me one day and said, Ivy, Friedan's out to get you. I have about 30 or 40 lesbians that will join, you know, save your back, because they still had time to join. It had to be 30 days ahead. And so I said, no, I, no, no, I, I, I don't want you to do that. I trust, ha, I trust the membership. I've worked with them since the founding. I trust them. Well, the night of the election, Paper members came. There had been this horrible telephone campaign that Fredan and her crew generated. Jackie Sabias, who is the head of uh, Veteran Feminists of America, she denies it, but Barbara said Jackie Sabias is making these horrible phone calls about you, blah, 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 blah. So at that, at that meeting, you could bullet vote. And so there were 15 of us on the steering committee and board, all of my people, when they realized what was happening, they all stepped down, so the only person they could vote for was me and a, a, a woman I'd never seen by the name of Vivian or Violet or Viola, I don't know. And she beat me by, by seven votes because it was totally stacked. I love the fact that you were a lesbian crusader even before you were really a lesbian completely. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did get elected to the board. Whoopee. And um, so I went to the first board meeting and I read them the riot act and said, I cannot serve with you because you've known me for how many years? And now I'm this monster. So I'm out of here. So I resigned, and I remember I would go to work, and I would come home, and I would sit in this rocking chair I had in the corner of the room, and I would sit there and go, what the hell happened? Is this issue so volatile, so heinous, that, that they would do this? That for Dan, who traveled by this time, she's traveling all over, would take the time to zero in on me. I realized that lesbianism is not only a feminist issue, but it's the bottom line. I mean, it, it is what keeps women in their place by fear. So, so if you can't stand being called a lesbian or thought of as a lesbian, you're never going to be free. Never, ever going to be free. You'll always be able to be controlled by this issue. And Well, I wonder if, conversely, that is the same is true for straight men. As long as you can weaken a man by calling him a faggot, that he is beholden to some kind of artificial sense of masculinity. Yeah, that's why I say men should yeah. join the women's movement. Well, you know, I created this chart years ago, probably 68, because I did a lot of speaking. And so I created this chart... 
And I, I don't do it. I just put the headings up there, and then the audience actually yells out words. Like the first, the first column is feminine, and I get them to yell out all the stereotype words about feminine. And I go, now, don't be shy. Nobody's going to hate you. <laughs> you know, what are the, and, and there's this long list of dependent, um, mothers, uh, nurture, blah, 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 sexy. You know, all these... And then the second column is masculine. And again, stereotype, butch, virile, strong, provider, father, you know, all the power words. Then I do gay man, and I get all the feminine words. And then I do masculine, and I get all the, um, oh, how is it? it goes, feminine, masculine, oh, lesbian. <laughs> that one. <laughs> and lesbian, I get all the masculine words. And I'm I'm not creating this. Which you think would be a good thing. Yeah, you know, (laughs) they're creating it. You know, I talk about that you're actually looking at the, the germ of sexism. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with legendary artist and activist Ivy Bettini. You were talking about putting the words on a wall and what do people think about. So I'd like to do something a little similar to you. Sure. With you. (laughs) Not to you. And (laughs) see. Oh, go ahead. Just just what comes to your mind when you think of these words? Dyke. Strong woman. Very. Doesn't take any guff. That word doesn't have any negative association for you? No. I love the word. AIDS. Um, Double-edged sword. Uh, one was horrible, and the other side of it created the larger organizations. And although I think they have shut out the grassroots, if they could wake up and encourage the grassroots, it, it would be great. But they haven't done that. As far as the movement goes, as far as human beings it was not just a loss for our community, but it's a loss for humanity because we are the creative people and we will not be putting that out there. How, how many have died? I mean, how many died of AIDS that, that probably 50% would have contributed something meaningful to society and we'll never have that chance? Pride. It has become a weak word because we have overused it. It's a great word, but over time, I think it's lost a lot of its meaning because we use it for everything. I I wear pride t-shirts all the time. Um, This says pride on the back. (laughs) And, you know, I am a walking billboard. (laughs) Pride has lost a lot of meaning for me because I think it's been softened Mm -hmm. because we use it just about everything. Same-sex marriage. I think it's wonderful for the people who want it. I personally think the assimilation is going to wipe out our our community as a community Mm -hmm. because the assimilation is already going on and we will be going back in the closet. Really? Yeah. Why do you think that? I don't, I don't think we will think of it as going back in the closet because the minority group does not move into the mainstream and then the mainstream becomes the minority group. It works the other way around. We move into the mainstream. We're going to be the mainstream. We will slowly let go of our, I think, uh, anger, 
of our commitment, and we will be the Joneses, <laughs> except there'll be two women and two men. It sounds like you're saying we'll lose our specialness. Yes, I, I believe we will. And what do you think is special about us? Well, our creativity. Um, it's, it never ceases to amaze me. Our service to the world. I just think our brains wire differently. And I think we think differently. If you're part of the, the world that, you know, you've never felt discriminated against, you know, maybe you had to stand too long on a line, that pissed you off. But, you know, but if you're a part of a group that has been on the outside and persecuted, I think your brain makes shifts um, to, for protection and strategies and how to get through your life, you know, which is a dangerous cause. There are some people who choose to live with a woman or live with a man, but for the most part, we're born this way. I mean, if I could have avoided all the pain I had in my life with my family, my kids, the regrets I have on how they were hurt, do you think I would have done it? If I had a choice, I knew that was going to happen. Do you think I would have done it? Probably not. We see things differently. You may look at that and say that's blue, and I look at it and say it's purple. It's just a different way of looking at life, and I think what we contribute moves society forward. Do you think that's true for all minority groups, anyone that's on the outside looking in? I think so. What does the word tolerance mean to you? I hate it. You know, I hate the word tolerance. I think it's an insult. I think it keeps um, discrimination going because it's, it's not an acceptance. Tolerance is not acceptance. And are you looking for acceptance? Yes and no. <laughs> I'm not looking for acceptance that we lose ourselves. And that's, that's what I think the marriage thing is going to eventually do. But I am looking for acceptance and safety for LGBT. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't understand me, I really don't give two hoots. <laughs> but if you are going to go kill me, then I care. Yeah. I, think, I think, and even acceptance isn't even a, a good word. Acceptance means we've finally come to some understanding and from where we were and, okay, I accept it. So I don't know what Detente. Beg pardon? <laughs> Detente. I'm thinking of words. I'm thinking of, yeah. you know, because I don't necessarily want to accept people who have a belief system that's very contrary to my own. I mean, I don't want to be forced to accept them. Right. But I do expect a certain common respect. Maybe it's just respect. Does that seem like a good word? It's something you have to do. It isn't automatic. Yeah. Um, I, I did that painting, I Am. That's what I want. I just want I Am for everybody. No apologies, no excuses. Just I'm alive and I am. To learn more about Ivy Bettini, you can visit her website at ivybettini.com. That's I-V-Y-B-O-T-T-I-N-I dot com. This has been Abby Dees. There's a place for us.
We'll be back with more of our conversation with Ivy Botini after this quick break. Don't go away. Piano Teacher and Mother, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. American pianist Van Cliburn always credited his mother, Rildia B. Cliburn, as his most influential piano teacher and most valued advisor. She was an accomplished pianist herself, having studied under Arthur Friedheim, pupil to Franz Liszt. While living in Shreveport, Louisiana, she began teaching him piano at age three after discovering him mimicking one of her students. Once Clyburn became famous, Real Jibby often traveled with him and served as his manager. After her husband died in 1974, she moved into Clyburn's New York apartment. Mother and son later moved to the Westover Hills neighborhood in Fort Worth, where they both lived out their final years. Clyburn sometimes attended services with his mother at Broadway Baptist Church. After her death in 1994, he often shared a pew with Tommy Smith, his longtime partner. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Simpson. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Carrie Harrison in West Hollywood, California, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now back to Abby's conversation with Ivy Botini. Feminist, artist, and LGBT activist Ivy Botini is working on a memoir, a book which will span five decades of the fight for social justice. I asked her if, as she looked back, she noticed any recurrent themes. She recalled a pivotal moment as a young woman in art school when a teacher suggested an approach to effective lettering that would hold true for much more to come. One day he was lecturing and he said, when you put your pen to paper, know where you want to go and go there. Don't think about it, just go there. And then he said, and this requires you to get out of your own way. And I didn't think about it at the time, but it has resonated with me forever. It's sort of like I'm finally accepting that it's a mantra because it had such impact, and I didn't even know it. And, and it's not that I'm aware that I'm getting out of my own way. I'm not aware I'm doing it, but I'm doing it. And it all goes back to that class. And when I was, I don't know, how old was I? 19, maybe 20. So do you know where you want to go? I want to go where life takes me. And that's the get out of your own way. And did you, and sort of looking back at major moments, like the founding of now or the beginning of the AIDS movement, did you know where you wanted to go? 
Not really. I just knew I wanted to be part of this tide that was moving. Individuals, as I've gone through my life, they have affected me in so many ways. It might be a sentence. It, it, it could be a sadness, and it captures my imagination, and some passion builds around it. And I can't work on things I'm not passionate about. Mm -hmm. I just can't. It's just, you know, two or three meetings and I'm out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in later years, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, I was reading uh, Joseph Campbell. And there's one thing that he wrote, you have to be willing to give up the life you plan to have the life that's waiting for you. And when I read it, I thought, oh, my God. That's how I've lived my life. I look upon everything pretty much as an adventure, even bad things. You know, even um, you get sick and it's an adventure. How are you going to get through it? But I guess I, quote, follow my bliss. I'm working now on two projects. One is an AIDS memorial for West Hollywood, and we're coming along. It will happen. Don't know where it's going to happen, but it, but it will And the other thing that I'm more passionate about, because the AIDS Memorial, we've got a good core group. And, you know, if I'm not there at every meeting, it's fine. But the other project is creating an LGBT museum. And it's going to be in Hollywood. It will focus on Southern California. It'll have a national overview and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to focus mainly on what Southern California activists in the LGBT movement the impact that we have had on on the country and the world. So I'm very, very passionate about that. Why? What makes you passionate about that? Because it will be there for people to see and people won't be forgotten, you know, including myself. I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to at least having a line in there somewhere. But, you know, it will document how long we've been in the struggle and what people sacrificed to live their lives, and the wins we've had, and the losses. But it'll, it'll go way back. When you talk to young people, when you meet young people, young activists, do you think they know? What's your sense of their awareness of what's come before? They don't know. They really don't know. And most of them don't care. There's a small handful of young activists that really care up and down the state. Uh, Robin McGeehee up in uh, Fresno. And there's Tom DeSimone here, Matt Palazzolo. I can't pull the names out of my mm-hmm. head, but, but there's, there's a cadre of young activists, and that gives me great hope. The night that Prop 8 went down, and all of a sudden, there were thousands of people on the street, and they were young. That moved me, too. It really yeah. surprised me. I was shocked. I, I sat in that chair watching the news crying, because I thought, my God, there is life after the creation of huge organizations which killed the ground troops, the grassroots. And, I mean, the grassroots has been dead for 15 years or more. But that they showed up on that night, I had hope. I thought, oh, okay, if I died tonight, there is hope. <laughs> So all those people that showed up, or even the people that couldn't get it together to show up, what would you like them to know? What would you like them, from, from all of your wisdom and experience, mistakes you've made, what would you like to implant into their minds, if you could? Okay. Uh, you got about eight hours. 
Well, well, one, they, they really should explore our history. You know, it's not all about drinking and dancing. You know, not all about, you know, being lovers. It goes way beyond the personal into the political because it is, personal is political. I would urge them to learn our history and get involved somewhere and recognize that life isn't all about drinking and dancing. And I would, I would like the young gay guys coming up to understand what feminism can do for them. Uh, they have no idea. They think, oh, it's only about women, but it's not. It's about gay men. You know, the objectification that goes on in the gay community, the gay male community, I see it as so destructive to psyches. Uh, it may be fun, the objectification in the gay male world when they're young, but as they get older and the values change, they're not valued anymore. And it comes as a huge shock, and very painfully so. I've been saying for years, since... 67 anyway, that gay men should join the women's movement because that's their salvation. It really is their salvation and their identity would change because when women's identity goes up and women's equality goes up, gay men will not be seen as something wrong because right now they're compared to women and so they're devalued. As women are devalued, so are the gay men. And they won't get it and it drives me crazy, just crazy. You know, and a lot of our uh, gay male politicians, you know, they think they're feminists. Um, they've learned to use the word, but they're really not. When they speak of history, they speak of gay male history. When they rattle off the names of all the, the different groups, the bears, you know, the daddies, the, the leather, when they rattle all of them off. And one politician, local politician, is very fond of doing that. And he, and he does about 30 of them. There's not one lesbian word in there that means woman. <laughs> Nothing. But at the same time, he'll say, but I'm a feminist. Well, he's not. He's a misogynist. And it comes out in all sorts of ways. This is Abby Dees and I'm talking with the amazing Ivy Bettini. What do you think we need to do to light a spark under our potential grassroots activists? We need another life or death issue. Like AIDS? Yeah. Yeah, which is sad, which is just sad. I was, I was looking at the years the other day, and from the suffrage movement to today, every 40 years, roughly 40, 41 years, women are under attack. It's like the powers can live with it for a while, and then we get too uppity. And then, bam. If you look at the dates, every 40 years. And we're in our 40th, 41st year. What do you think would have happened in our community if AIDS hadn't happened, in our communication with one another? Well, once I joined the um, now in 66, uh, I did not realize that for the next 10 years, I did not deal with men at all. I was at odds with men, not all men, you know, but the legislators, the, you know, the people that had power over us in a meaningful way. You know, maybe you have a husband, he's an asshole. I, you know, right at this moment, I can't come to your house and do anything about it. But, you know, it, it was what men do. It's mm -hmm. not that I hate men, it's that I hate what they do. <laughs> that kind of quote. And it took 
Prop 6, the Briggs Initiative, to put me back into contact with men, gay men. And we worked together very, very well. See, I don't think that we're cohesive now. I think that changed after the AIDS epidemic got under control. There are a lot of lesbians and dykes who will not come to West Hollywood. They will not. They won't set foot in the city because there's nothing here for them. And there really is nothing here for them. No, it really isn't. And do you think, is this one of those things where the young women aren't getting it or are just blasé about it? They're not even blasé. Do they notice? It's, it's all, they don't know how to confront. Confrontation isn't easy. We're not brought up that way. And there are times you have to confront. You just can't go along and hope people are going to not do that. You've got to take a stand, and it doesn't matter if everybody in the room hates you after you've spoken. You've got to do it, and that's what they can't seem to do. I'm wondering, knowing my sisters and knowing how also some years ago my sisters were a little more doctrinaire than they are now, did you get flack or criticism from other women for being so involved with things that could have been perceived as men's issues? I didn't realize it. But I find out now that, that a lot of hardcore lesbians thought I was on some level a traitor. That's a strong word, but it's mm -hmm. the only thing I can use. How did you come to find that out? Basically from Jean, my buddy Jean, Cordova. Several times we've been in conversation. We work on things together. And so several times we've been in conversation, and she'll say something like, well, you've worked on the men's issue so long. Well, you know, the women didn't know what to do with you because you were over there working with men. And I, did, I had no clue, <laughs> absolutely no clue, because I knew in my head, I know I'm a feminist, I'm a lesbian, that is my first issue, that is my commitment, and there are other issues as a human being that I will try to help with in our community. So I had no idea that there was any resentment at all. You know, I'll, I'll bump into dykes, you know, at an event, and they're in their 50s or 60s. They'll come up to me and say, you know, um, I've watched you over the years and blah, 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 blah. But I've never seen them before. And I find myself wondering, am I okay with you now? You know, or, or do you still see me as... Um, being a turncoat or something. But I have to do what I have to do. If the gay men are in trouble with AIDS, you can't ignore that. How can you ignore that? How can you not work on it? And there were a whole bunch of lesbians who did work on it, and then there were a whole bunch of lesbians who wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. How could they do that? I, I don't get that. I just don't get that. Earlier in the interview... Ivy mentioned that she wouldn't mind being remembered in the LGBT museum she's helping create. So, of course, I had to ask, how would she like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered that I saved lives, um, both psychologically and physically, because that's what I do. I work on issues that saves lives. That's a nice job description. This is Abby Dees, and I've been speaking with artist and activist Ivy Bettini. We shall rule.
Ivy Botini was born on August 15, 1926, and died this year on February 25, 2021. But her message and spirit live on. Don't go away. We'll be right back with our interview with Mark Bingham's mom, Alice Hoagland, after this quick break. Pianist Van Clyburn at rest. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. World-renowned pianist Harvey Lavin Clyburn, known as Van Clyburn, died on February 27, 2013. Days later, 1,500 people filled the Fort Worth Broadway Baptist Church for a two-hour service to honor him. Those present included former President George W. Bush, Governor Rick Perry, and Clyburn's longtime partner Tommy Smith. There were also a number of Russian dignitaries. After Clyburn won a Russian piano competition in 1958, he had become a darling to millions of older Russians. As the pianist's flower-covered casket rested beneath the pulpit, cascades of music from the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra and the chorus of Broadway Baptist Church filled the sanctuary. The service fulfilled Clyburn's wishes, including accompaniment from the organ he had previously dedicated to his mother, the Rilja B. O'Brien Clyburn Organ. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Simpson. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? I am, are you? I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm Carrie Harrison, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. When Steve Pride cooked breakfast for Mark Bingham's mom in his San Francisco condo on the hills above the Castro, she pleaded, don't let Mark's legacy die. It was 2013, and she was in town because a documentary about her son called With You was about to play at a nearby film festival. A quick note about this interview, although it may sound occasionally like suppressed laughter, Alice is actually trying to mask her sobs. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to United's Flight 93, bound for San Francisco. We are now boarding first class Mark Bingham was born to Alice Hoagland on May 22, 1970, and died at 10.03 a.m. on September 11, 2001, when with a few other passengers, 
he stormed the cockpit of United Flight 93 and fought to prevent members of Al-Qaeda from using the plane to kill hundreds, maybe thousands, of additional victims. Instead, the plane crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mark was 6 feet 4 and 225 pounds. He was a lifelong rugby star. In college, he was president of his fraternity. And, oh yeah, he was gay. But Mark Bingham was not a gay hero. He's an American hero. And this summer, with you, a documentary about this special man is winning awards and hearts at film festivals around the country. I'm Alice Hoagland. Uh, I'm the mother of Mark Bingham, who was killed on September 11, 2001, on United Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You're here in San Francisco for the debut of a remarkable documentary about your son, but it's about you as well. What's the genesis of the film? Mark's childhood friend, Todd Sarner, happened to be seated next to Scott Gracheff, who was a PBS producer, and it was just a fortuitous event. Todd found out that Scott was his seatmate there and bit his lip not to pitch this idea, but couldn't stand it after about 20 minutes. I've got to tell you this, that there's a story that needs to be told, and I have a friend who died on 9-11 fighting terrorists aboard Flight 93. He was my best friend through high school and college, and he was a studly guy, a, a rugby player, and he was gay. And that's the genesis of With You, the Mark Bingham story. And I am so grateful that all that happened, needless to say. It's just been remarkable to me how this has evolved and has brought people together. I just wish Mark were here because he would really revel not only in the attention that he was getting, but also in the fact that he was enhancing and doing good PR work for the LGBT community, something that he would be very happy about. Mark was incredibly protective of you. One of the phrases repeated over and over in the documentary is, don't tell my mom. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of the way it was. I learned a lot about Mark after he was killed. And I learned things like months and years later. His uh, rugby coach in high school, I didn't mean to let the cat out of the bag, Dan said when he told me there wasn't really true that his... Uh, his big thigh cut did not really come from a Fijian farmer. It came from a plate glass door that was charged through by Mark on the way to trying to get away from the police down there. And the time that Mark actually knocked over, tackled the Stanford tree, which is the mascot for Stanford University, I didn't hear about that until after Mark was bailed out of jail by my brother Vaughn, Mark's uncle. And uh, it was frightening to behold <laughs> and to learn about it later that the Stanford tree had been taken out by an angry and irate uh, and slightly overwrought cow guy named Mark Bingham. <laughs> As I understand it, the fingerprints that were generated when Mark was arrested for taking out the Stanford tree were the ones that were used to identify him at the crash site. In a crash like that, the human body acts very much like a large, soft envelope, and the things that are left are feet and hands. 
And I imagine that that's what was left of Mark when they shipped him back in a beautiful casket in the aftermath of 9-11. What's the significance of the film's title, With You? With you is what I used to hear all the time when I stood on the sidelines. It's a common phrase that the rugby players use to orient and to let their fellow teammate who is holding the ball and running with the ball, let them know where you are so that they can throw the ball to you in a lateral pass if they need to. I'm with you. I'm with you. And this is what Mark used to say as he and his buddies were advancing the ball down the field. It's a very common phrase among ruggers. On September 11th, 2001, you were visiting your brother, sound asleep, the phone rang. 6.44 in the morning, the phone rang, and we were all dead asleep out in Saratoga, you know, a continent away from New York. And I thought, oh, I can't get up and answer the phone. I hope somebody does. And I heard it ring again. And I heard Carol Phipps, a family friend, answer it. And I heard her pad past the room where I was sleeping. And I heard her knock on Vaughn and Kathy's door. And I heard Kathy get out of bed and run to the phone. And I heard Kathy say, we love you too, Mark. Let me get your mom. And she saw me standing in the hallway and she said, Alice, come talk to Mark. He's been hijacked. And boy, I was trying hard to get my head around that one. Came and, and uh, listened. And I heard Mark's voice. He said, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. And he often said, this is Mark Bingham when he was talking to business associates on the phone. But he didn't usually say that to me. <laughs> and I could tell that he was trying to be very focused and composed and businesslike. So he let that slip out. Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you that I love you. I'm on a flight from Newark to San Francisco, and there are three guys on board who have taken over the plane, and they say they have a bomb. You believe me, don't you, Mom? And I said, yes, Mark, I believe you. Who are those guys? And then he was sort of distracted, and I heard the voices of the guys he was making this big plan of revolt with. They were talking. They were already making their plan. And then he came back to me, and he said, I'm calling you from the air phone. And the FBI told me later that he was in 25 DEF calling. It was a big, empty airplane. There were only 40 innocent people on board. This is Steve Pride. I'm talking to Alice Hoagland about her son, Mark Bingham, who was aboard United Airlines Flight 93 on September 11, 2001. Alice, tell me about listening to the tape. The cockpit voice recording was really an eerie and, and ghastly experience in a way, and yet it was very cathartic and important that we heard it. We were invited by the FBI to come to uh, Princeton, New Jersey to listen to it, and, and boy, listen, we did. A bunch of uh, Flight 93 family members sat together with uh, headsets on and an over, overhead screen with translations of the Arabic that was being spoken. And it's a 31-minute tape that runs in a continuous loop so if it gets to be 31 minutes then they, and it starts erasing again so the actual takeover of the airplane by the terrorist Siad Jara and his three thug buddies was actually erased by the time uh, because the plane crashed 31 minutes plus after the time of the takeover fortunately the takeover was actually caught because we think that Leroy Homer the uh, first officer keyed his mic open and the words that were spoken by Captain Dahl, get out of here, get out of here, came down and were heard by the fellow's ground control in Cleveland. 
So we do have a pretty good audio record of the takeover right up through the crash. The first 20 minutes or so of the cockpit voice recording are pretty dreary. I can remember hearing such sounds as a flight attendant working just outside the cockpit door. Sometimes you hear phrases coming out of the very automated system there, and I can remember the sound of the autopilot kicking in and out. It was unusual for it to go in and out like that, but I realized that the terrorist pilot, quote-unquote, Ziad Jara, did not know how to turn off the autopilot, so he kept it on. He was fighting with it, and He had dropped the altitude of the plane so low, it's supposed to be flying 30,000 feet when it's going 600 miles an hour, but he was going 600 miles an hour at about 2,000 feet, and then 1,500 feet, and then 1,000 feet. People in Pittsburgh remember the sight of a great big 757 out of control, whipping its wings back and forth, and flying low over their city, and it crashed a few minutes later, 90 miles south in Shanksville. And what we heard as family members was the sound that was picked up by three microphones, two in the headsets of the pilots, and one mounted on the aft bulkhead. And even though it was technically flawed and barely audible. It was still just enough to to turn you white. It, we could hear the sound of people mounting a revolt in the back, and we could hear the lead terrorist asking his buddy, are they fighting? Are they fighting in the back? Hold up the hatchet so they will see it and be afraid. He was thinking that if you hold up the fire axe to the peephole, the people that are outside can see it. Well, that's not the way that peephole worked. It was heartening to hear how frightened those terrorists were when they realized that their plan, their ugly plan, years in the making, was going to fail because three or four or five or six guys in the back decided that they were going to put up some resistance. They took a vote and they they grabbed what weapons they could and they ran forward. And I can just visualize Mark with his long legs running over those seats and his buddies running up the aisles on foot. This was my workplace and now it was a battleground where my son and his good friends there, his pickup buddies, also athletes, a football quarterback, another rugby player, a basketball star from Mark's very alma mater, Los Gatos High School, and Mark Bingham, and whoever else, Alan Bevan, Richard Guadagno, wonderful people on board that flight. All of them athletic. They ran forward, and you could hear the sound of it as the cockpit voice recording picked up. Now we didn't hear Arabic voices so much. Now we heard English spoken in American accent by a bunch of very motivated guys, and it was, get him, get him, in the cockpit, in the cockpit. If we don't get in there, we'll die. And Dina Burnett tells me that that was the sound of of her husband, Tom. And then the other guys picked it up. It reminded me so much of a rugby match. And the other guys picked it up. I could hear Mark yelling, in the cockpit. And Alan Bevan, perhaps, and Todd, and Jeremy, and Tom, all of them chanting like that, encouraging one another. And you could hear the sounds of blows being struck. And you could hear the sound of the two terrorists being dispatched. (laughs) 
It was a very vigorous time. <laughs> they, they fought as best they could. They used the liquor cart as a battering ram against the cockpit door. And I wish I'd had another minute when Mark called me. Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you I love you. I wish that I'd had another minute before, before we were cut off. And I could have told him, Mark, there is a cockpit key just a few feet away from the cockpit door. You get in there. You turn it. It's easy. It's a flimsy door. It pulls out into the cabin. And you can get in there easily. But they didn't know that. And they, they apparently, according to the FBI, they used a liquor cart from the forward galley as a battering ram against the cockpit door. And you could hear the crockery, the, the glass and plates pitching back and forth in that galley. And it, it was an onslaught that went on for a good seven, eight, ten minutes. And Ziad Jarov finally realized that he was going to have to stop them by doing what he did, and an eyewitness on the ground says that he saw this enormous plane rise straight up and come up over the horizon and tip upside down and plunge straight down into the ground. The FBI tells us that the cockpit probably sheared off. They found some remains in the burning hemlock trees, but when the paramedics and the other emergency equipment arrived as, as best they can a few minutes later out there in Shanksville, way out in a remote area, they couldn't find any evidence of the airplane. They saw uh, pieces of uh, paper floating around, and, and it, it took some digging to find the remains of the airplane. It had buried itself so thoroughly and so fast in the loamy soil out there in southwest Pennsylvania that there was nothing left of it. They had to dig it out, and they found the cockpit voice recorder and the, and the flight data recorder. And I was so gratified on the late afternoon of September 11th to, to get verification from the FBI of what I'd been telling people, that it was a studly group of passengers that got together and mounted a revolt. It was not a coincidence or an accident that the plane came down short of the terrorist target of the Capitol Dome in Washington. Watching the home movies of Mark in the documentary, I... It's pretty clear that he would have been impervious to my gaydar. So when he was younger, did you ever have any suspicions about his sexuality? I don't have gaydar, but Mark used that expression a lot. But I was uh, dumbfounded when he came out to me on August 27, 1991. I was just astounded. I did not receive the news very well. Mark really set me on a spiritual journey. And he has taught me how to live my life, and he has taught me how important it is to be open to people who are not like me, and to realize that there is much love and redemption to be, to be earned, and I need to ask the forgiveness of the gay community for being you know, just slightly uh, uh, unaware and uh, ungracious at first. Fortunately, Mark had the grace to be patient with me, and I'm so grateful that he had enough love for both of us for a while. And I did come around and I began to realize, hey, I need to revise my attitudes and I need to speak out against the stereotyping that the gay community is receiving. And Mark tells me that there are not enough gay heroes and people 
to look up to as role models. And that needs to change. And as Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change. And, and that's what I want to do. I want to be the change. And I'm in such good company now. There are so many people who are speaking up and coming to the fore and being good spokespersons for the LGBT community. I think that everyone, everyone should be fully enfranchised with the mainstream and should be proud of their sexuality and marry whom they love. This has been a conversation with Mark Bingham's mom, Alice Hoagland. The documentary is called With You. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Even though he could not marry Or teach your children in our schools Because who he wants to love Is breaking your God's rules He stood up on a Tuesday morning In the terror he was brave And he made his choice And without a doubt A hundred lives he must have saved Now you cannot change this And you can't erase this You can't pretend this is not the truth Stand up America Hear the bell now as it tolls Wake up America It's Tuesday morning Come on, let's roll The documentary about Mark Bingham was renamed The Rugby Player and will be available to stream for the very first time starting on September 6th. It can be rented on the Vimeo platform. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Carrie Harrison and our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, simply email public at prideonscreen.com. That's public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show that's broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also catch us anytime at iTunes on Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night from IMRU. I'm Carrie Harrison. Nothing wrong with all the food in your eyes She said, cause you have your perfect